Now that we have prayed for God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, let us open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 for our text in verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is God's holy word inspired by the Holy Spirit and written for your good. Please give it your full attention. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then. What you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Our use of names today, and specifically to the giving of names to our children, is often based on what is pleasing to the ear or what is popular. Our mentality towards names is oftentimes similar to Juliet's when she speaks of Romeo, stating, A rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. As you probably well know, Juliet was from the house of Capulet, and Romeo was from the house of Montague, and alas, there was strife between these two families. Romeo was her rose, and no matter what his name was, he smelled sweet to her. And her point is simply that the name doesn't matter. But that's not how the Bible portrays the importance of names. The names of God in the Bible tell us the character of God. And the names of people in the Bible often tell us something about the person who carries that name. That's why God even changes certain names at times in the Bible to reflect who that person was to be. Now, in the message Christ delivers to Sardis, names are of vital importance as well. And that word, the English word name, is used four different times in this passage. You probably won't see all four in your English translation, but they are certainly all there in the Greek. For instance... In your translations, verse 1 may say something like, You have the reputation of being alive, 
but you are dead. The actual word in Greek for reputation is the Greek word for name, which is used three other times in this passage. And the implication here is that they bear the name of a church, or more specifically, they bear the name of Christ upon them. But their works suggest otherwise. Therefore, Christ says that they are not alive, but dead. Now, Christ is unmistakably speaking in hyperbole here. That is, he is exaggerating with regard to their state in order to wake them up. And we know this because in the following verse, he says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. If it dies, then Christ says he will come to them and he's indicating that he will remove their lampstand status. That is, he will remove their status as a true church which bears his name. So what's going on then in Sardis? Well, that's difficult to know specifically from the text because... Christ doesn't state anything about a sect of Jezebel or Nicolaitans, as he has done in some of the earlier messages. He doesn't tell us about any synagogue of Satan or dealing with those who call themselves Jews but who truly are not. What he does say in verse 2 is that he has not found their works complete. And so their works were incomplete. We could put it this way. Their service to God was not yet complete. The Sardians, not the Sardines, but the Sardians, let's get that out of the way. The Sardians were in the tribulation, just as the church throughout this age is in the tribulation until Christ returns in final judgment. Therefore, they needed to bear the name of Christ, not just in name only, but in action. In other words, they needed to persevere in the midst of the tribulation, in the midst of temptation, seduction, deception, and persecution. Down in verse 4, he says that there are a few names, and there's that word again, And here it refers to a few persons in the church of Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Now this is helpful to us here because it implies that the rest at Sardis were soiling or staining their garments by giving in to the pressures of persecution, deception, and seduction. In fact, in Revelation chapter 14... Verses 4 through 8, we learn that the redeemed are those who have not soiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, this is in no way saying that you have to be a virgin or a male virgin to be redeemed. It's symbolism, right? It is spiritual virginity. The point being made here is that the redeemed have not defiled themselves With idolatrous fornication. The idolatrous fornication with Babylon. The city of the great prostitutes. 
Now, pressures in Sardis were probably not much different than those of the other churches that we've looked at thus far. All of them were living under the pagan Roman Empire and dealing with pressures to conform to the idolatrous practices of the society around them. A society that represented Babylon, the city of the great prostitute. To give in to those pressures, to compromise on Christian living, and to conform to the idolatrous practices around you, is to soil your garment. That's what the majority of the church at Sardis had been doing. Probably a lot with those trade guilds sacrificing and eating meals of uh, meat that were sacrificed to false gods. And so they were conforming to the idolatrous practices around them and thus soiling their garments. Now you can see why Christ says that they had a name for being alive, but they were dead, or at least they were all but dead. Therefore he commands them, he says, Wake up, literally, he says, become one who is alert, become one who is watchful. And he's implying that they have become spiritually lethargic regarding their faith in the midst of a dark and dying world. They don't need to live like the dying, but like the living. Again, The name they bear implies that they have life, but their spiritual lethargy, on the other hand, implies that they are one with the dying, dark world around them. They are spiritually asleep, and so they are to wake up and be watchful. Why? Because Christ could return to them at any time. He says specifically, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now here he is not referring to his final bodily return, his final bodily coming on the day of judgment. He is speaking here of a conditional coming to the church at Sardis. He says, if... If they do not wake up, then he will come against them. And remember, Christ walks among his lampstand churches. Revelation 2.1. The lampstands are his churches. And he says he walks in their midst. And so he will come against them in judgment like a thief. They will not know when. And so he's referring here not to his final return, but to a potential return in judgment against the church at Sardis. Nevertheless, his potential coming in judgment against the Sardians is described like his final coming on the day of judgment. Perhaps you remember our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 and 43, when he speaks of his return. He says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. 
Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You see, the Sardians were not to be spiritually asleep as if they were children of the night, but to be awake as children of the day, children of the light. And the Apostle Paul uses the same analogy when he refers to Christ's final coming. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 through 6, he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. The Sardians were not to be spiritually asleep. And sleep in scripture is often a metaphor for being dead. They were not to live as if they were spiritually dead. To be spiritually dead is to walk in the darkness. Rather, they were to live as those who are spiritually awake. To be spiritually awake or to be alive is to walk in the light. And therefore, they were to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, as Paul commanded the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 2. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Now, it's very clear that they had begun to take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. That is, the unfruitful works of Babylon. Because many of them had soiled their garments. Therefore, they were to strengthen what remains. You see, Jesus is indicating that they had begun a life of faithful service to the Lord. But something had hindered them from continuing to bear fruit. Whether it was the fear of the persecuting beast or the seduction of Babylon, the Sardians needed to demonstrate that they were not the seed that fell on the rocky path or the seed that fell among the thorns. In both of those cases, the seed came up but did not bear fruit and it died. And when Jesus explains what this parable means, he said, As for what was sown on rocky ground, that is, the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns... That is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. You see, the the church at Sardis initially received the word with joy. However, something went wrong. 
But they had not yet fallen away or been choked out. Therefore, they needed to strengthen what remains and was about to die and complete their works in the sight of God. Which means they needed to continue living a life of faithful service to God unto their very deaths. However, physical death in this life may have come for them. Now, I think that begs the question, how were they able to do this? Well, the Lord tells them that on their part, they needed to remember what they had received and heard, to keep it, and to repent. They needed to turn from their works of darkness and unto Jesus and walk in the light as he is in the light. However, on their own part, or by themselves alone, they could not do this. Therefore, Christ assures them of what he will do for them on his part. He provides an assurance for them. He provides this assurance in verse 1 in his own self-description, which just as the others came from that first vision that John saw back in chapter 1. He says, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, remember the symbolism here of seven. It means something that is complete or full, the perfection of something, the fullness of something. There's only one Holy Spirit. There's not seven Holy Spirits. And so Jesus is speaking symbolically. He is saying that he possesses the fullness of the Spirit. He has the seven spirits, meaning he possesses the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Christ himself was given the Spirit without measure, John 3.34. And having accomplished our redemption, Christ became the life-giving Spirit, 1 Corinthians 15.45. Christ did not possess, beloved, the fullness of the Spirit only for himself but to bestow it upon his people that they may have life. For rivers of living water were to flow out of Christ, which John 7.39 says refers to the Holy Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. And so that Christ, therefore, is assuring them that he possesses the life they need to be alert and awake, walking as children of the light. Now this is really expressed in another way, very vividly in this text. Remember that Christ walks among the lampstand churches, which are numbered seven in that very first vision that John received back in chapter 1. Well, take notice that both the Spirit of God and the lampstands are symbolically numbered seven. In fact, in chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, 
the seven spirits are described as the seven flames of fire. And this clearly indicates that the Holy Spirit is being symbolized as the seven flames of fire that burn brightly on the seven lampstands, the church. You see, Christ possesses the fullness of the Spirit. And possessing the fullness of the Spirit, He is the source for empowering His church to shine brightly in their witness for God. Christ, whose face shines as bright as the sun, Revelation 1.16, stands in the midst of his lampstands, shining brightly and re- reproducing his own light in the churches. In other words, he is reproducing them in his own image. They reflect his light. He is the preeminent faithful witness, and they are to be faithful witnesses of him, reflecting his light. If the church at Sardis is to strengthen what remains, then they must repent and turn to Christ, possessor of the Spirit without measure. And the only source there is to fire up their lively and faithful service to God. Now, for those few names in Sardis who had not soiled their garments, this does not mean that they had become sinless. It's referring to those who bear the name of Christ and whose works demonstrate that fact. Not that they were perfect. And so to those who had not soiled their garments, Christ says, They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And what Jesus is saying here is that the pure garments that they currently wear foreshadow the white robes that they will wear at the wedding feast of the Lamb when Christ returns. Now, obviously, there is a relation between these two sets of garments, but they're not the same. The unsoiled garments, or we might call them pure garments, simply refer to their remaining faithful to Christ by separating themselves from the idolatrous practices of the world. The white garments on the other hand, are those that will be given to all true believers at the return of Christ. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, indicates this by telling us that the ones with white robes are those who have come out of the tribulation. Therefore, it's a vision of a time when this age, this age of tribulation has come to an end. And having come out of this age of tribulation, having come out of the tribulation, they have been given white robes. I actually believe that the white robes are symbolic of our future resurrected and glorified bodies. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see, I think at minimum that is referring 
uh, to our resurrected and glorified bodies. We shall be like him who has been raised and glorified. But then how does John finish that verse? He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him does what? Purifies himself as he, as Christ, is pure. And that's what our passage calls the unsoiled garments. They are the pure garments, demonstrating the purity of our works done in faith. And so our pure garments that demonstrate the purity of our works done in faith, those pure garments, those unsoiled garments, foreshadow the white garments we will wear at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Most likely our glorified and resurrected bodies. Now, Christ goes on to promise this more formally in the next verse. He says, the one who conquers, right? Who's the one who conquers? The one who's come out of the tribulation. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, will be clothed thus in white garments. And then he goes on to give two more promises. Saying, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now these two additional promises return us to the name theme or motif that is prevalent in this passage or in this message. Of the two additional promises, the first assures the overcomer that his name will never be blotted out of the book of life. And this is what Revelation later calls the Lamb's book of life. And in chapter 13, verse 8, as well as in chapter 17, verse 8, we are told that the names in that book were written before the foundation of the world. And so those names are fixed in that book. They are not fluid, meaning names are not added to and taken away from that book. The names that were written in the book will always be in that book. And that is the promise given to the church at Sardis, that their names will never be blotted out. Those overcomers, those conquerors at Sardis, that their names will never be blotted out. It is not, beloved, you have to see, it is not a threat that their names might be removed. This is a promise to the overcomer that his name will never be taken out of the Lamb's book of life. Now, if the earlier part of this message made it sound like salvation was entirely up to each individual at the church of Sardis, this latter part confirms what scripture teaches quite often and quite clearly, namely the doctrine of election, that God has elected from before the foundation of the world those who will inherit eternal life. Their names are fixed in the Lamb's book of life. Christ did not come to make salvation possible for everyone. He came and shed his blood for all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And their sins, by his death, were atoned. They were covered over and forgiven. 
Will people be held responsible for the deeds that they do in this life? And for how they respond to the gospel? Yes. And that might seem contradictory to us. Since God predestined from before the foundation of the world. Whose names will be in the book of life. But Holy Scripture teaches both. They might seem contradictory to us. But truly, they are not. The names in that book are fixed, not based upon the works that God saw down the road that they would perform. That would not be grace. They are fixed in that book based upon God's sovereign election. And those whom he elected will overcome and their names will never be blotted out. He knows the names in that book. We do not. And so he speaks to us throughout this message as those who cannot read hearts. As he can read hearts. And so he calls them to faith and repentance. To turn from their sins and to Christ. Now the final promise that Christ gives to the overcomer. Is that he will confess that person's name before the father. And before his angels. And here is the fourth and final use of the word name in this passage. Christ will confess that person's name before the Father. The one who truly and faithfully bears the name of Christ will have his name confessed before the Father. There is a scene in Revelation chapter 20 where books, plural, books are opened. There are the books of mankind's deeds. And then there is the book of life. And Christ the judge is bringing his verdict on all who lived. Unbelievers are are being judged according to their deeds, which will only be damning. Because verse 15 tells us that if anyone's name was not written in the Lamb's book of life, then he was thrown into the lake of fire. But the scene sort of evokes the idea of Christ judging everyone, person by person, and whoever's name was written in the Lamb's book of life, Christ confessed that one's name before the Father and his angels, who also stand with him in the heavenly courtroom. Of course, Jesus is recorded as saying this in both the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. And the context in those passages is is not fearing those who can kill the body, but fearing the one who can kill both soul and body in hell. In other words, fear not if persecution comes against you. Do not give in to the pressures of the beast. For he can only kill the body. But God can destroy both body and soul in hell. Fear him and be faithful to his son. Persevere to the end. For Christ will confess such conquerors, such overcomers before the Father in heaven. A message that is most suited to the church in Sardis. And to all of us. 
Beloved, this message to Sardis is important for all who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. See, those who have been baptized into the church bear the name of Christ. By your baptism, the Lord puts his name upon you. And it symbolizes being washed in the blood of the Lamb and being risen to new life. That's what your baptism symbolizes. But the church, those baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit must improve upon their baptisms. That is, they must continually examine their lives to see whether they are Christians in truth or in name only. We could put it this way. We should evaluate ourselves to see if what the sign of baptism symbolizes has been applied to us. Or if merely the outward sign alone has been applied. And that evaluation occurs in part by assessing our loyalty to Christ. We are not to claim the name of Christ while at church, but then go And worship the gods of this world. We must remain faithful to Christ. You who bear his name. You must remain faithful through persecution. Deception and temptation. That is, you must remain faithful throughout this tribulation. If we fall to these, then we must repent And look to Christ. Who is abundantly gracious. And who is the source of life and empowerment to carry out his will. That we might shine brightly. For him. He has the seven spirits of God. And he holds the seven stars in his hands which we learned in chapter 1, are the seven angels. An angel for each church. Remember, beloved, how the angels came and ministered to Christ in the hours of His greatest temptation and suffering. And now He holds those angels in His hands to send them to you. When your hours of greatest need come, And so bear the name of Christ, not in name only, but in truth. Be a faithful witness to him. Keep your garments pure. For if you do, then you are demonstrating that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. In other words, your name is enrolled as a citizen of the New Jerusalem. And on judgment day, beloved, you will receive a white robe. For your name will be spoken on the roll call as Christ confesses your name before the Father. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
for your grace to us through Jesus Christ. That he indeed suffered and by his death on the cross washed our sins away and has made us now able to walk in newness of life. For just as he was raised from the grave, so too have we been raised to walk in newness of life. And Lord, we pray that we might have full assurance of our faith. And our works certainly can be fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. Lord, we pray that we might evaluate those. And we pray even for our own selves, that we too would strengthen what remains, for we know we are not always faithful. But help us not, O God, to identify ourselves, the Babylon the Great, with whatever the prince of this world is deceiving the nations with. Help us only to identify with who you are, both in name and in action. Help us to seek after the power of your spirit who has given us life and who is an ever abundant resource for what we need to shine brightly. We thank you for all that you do for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.